Amen. Thank you, City Light. Go ahead and take a seat. As Derek said, man, he got a long text there. Good job. You made it all the way through. Um, as Derek said, my name is Eric, and I am one of the pastors here, and it is a pleasure to be here with all of you, uh, getting to spend some time in God's Word, the Bible. And so we just read from the book of Ephesians, and we've been tracking through this book of Ephesians, and we're calling our series Ephesians in Jesus. And we call it In Jesus because over and over again, time after time, we see in this book the words In Jesus or In Christ or In Jesus Christ or some variation In Jesus. Paul is telling us what it is like to be in Jesus. And so we started a few weeks ago and in week one, we saw that we are blessed in Jesus. The Bible says we have received every spiritual blessing in Jesus. Hashtag blessed, right? Week two, we saw that we can know in Jesus what those blessings are. Paul prayed that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we can know the hope and the inheritance and the power that can be found in Jesus. And then last week, uh, we started chapter two and we saw that we are made alive in Jesus, right? Our God is not interested in taking bad people, making them good, in taking good people and making them better. Our God makes dead people alive. That's the gospel, right? And so... Today, we're going to continue this process of going through Ephesians and seeing what it means to be in Jesus. And today, we're going to explore the idea that we are one in Jesus, okay? Um, So I like to start with questions. You may have uh, learned that about me this far into the church plant. So I'm going to pitch one out there for you today. Has there ever been a time when you felt left out, like separated from the crowd? You weren't picked or weren't invited, have you ever just felt left out on the outside? Well, I'll tell you about a time I did. Um, You know, when I was in college, I had these big dreams that I was going to strike it rich in Hollywood. And uh, like most of those dreams, um, I ended up sleeping on the street and things didn't work out the way that I planned. Uh... It wasn't quite as dramatic as that sounds, but all that is true. Um, When I was in college, my buddies and I, we planned a trip over spring break to uh, make it on The Price is Right. Okay, you know, come on down. You're the next contestant. This was back in the golden years of The Price is Right when Bob Barker was in control, not Drew Carey, though I think he does okay. You know, I don't watch it all the time. But if you've ever been there, if you've ever gone to try to be on The Price is Right, anybody tried this before? It's kind of a crazy process. You have to get to the studio at like three in the morning so that you can get in line early enough that you'll get let in. And so we show up before the sun is up. We're sitting on the street, literally playing games. Uh, I think we had a deck of cards or something. We're playing games for hours until the studio opens. And at that time, they let in the first couple hundred people. I mean, the stage is small. Uh, the, the audience is small. And so they let in the first couple hundred people. And if you didn't get there early enough, too bad, you're out. You got to try again another time. But we, we made it in and uh, you get into the second line 
And when you're in the second line, these producers start walking by and they'll pull a couple people away and they just interview you because they're trying to see who's animated enough, who's going to make a good contestant on our show. And so you get interviewed and this takes hours. And then after that, um, after they've chosen who the contestants are going to be, they don't tell you, but they've made their choices. Then you go into a third line where you wait more hours until the show begins uh, filming. And so I went through this whole process and I can't tell you how excited I was, the anticipation when I'm sitting in those seats and the announcer, you know, the music starts playing, he's getting ready to call the next contestant down. I can't tell you how excited I was because I thought, man, if I get picked, it's going to be awesome. You get to move from the nosebleed seats down to those four green seats in the front row, right? And you're going to make it on TV and I'm going to get a bid on items that I would never ordinarily buy in real life. You know, some sort of jewelry or something. I have toilet cleaner. I don't know what all this stuff is, but I knew if I got picked, I was going to get the perfect bid. And when I got it, I'd get to go up on stage and hug Bob as he handed me 500 bucks. And then I was going to win my game, spin that wheel, take home a showcase or two, drive home a brand new car and have a story to tell, right? For the rest of my life. Well, as it worked out, I did not get picked day one. So being poor college students, we thought we got to be here early in the morning tomorrow. We just slept on the street in our car in downtown Hollywood. We almost got towed. It's a story for another day. Uh, But we went back day two, same long process, same, uh, got to get in. I still didn't get called. We went home empty handed. I was in the audience. I was so close. If I could just get picked, I could have gotten all the prizes, right? but instead I had to watch from afar. Have you ever not gotten picked? Have you ever been the one left on the outside looking in? I think most of us have had an experience, maybe not quite like that, but an experience sort of like that, right? When we were excluded and left out. Well, last week, Pastor Doug walked us through the first half of of Ephesians 2, and he started off by saying, um, Paul takes us to this really bad throwback Thursday, right? You were dead. Well, Paul is doing this again, okay? Another bad throwback, except this time, instead of saying, you were dead, he says, you were separated. You were left out. You weren't picked, okay? Um, Let's look at this in the Bible, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. Not a rosy memory to recall, right? In essence, Paul is saying, remember that time you weren't picked. This isn't a question like, do you remember that time you weren't picked? This is a command. Therefore, remember when you were separated from Christ. We're supposed to recall it and relive it in our minds. At one time, we were separated from Jesus. Now, at this point, you might be asking, well, 
Who is you Gentiles and what one time is Paul talking about? Uh, So I'll jump in there. The one time Paul's talking about is all of human history from Abraham to Jesus. Okay? It's a big time period. Um, You see, way back in the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, God made a promise to a guy named Abraham. And the promise sounded something like this, exactly like this. Genesis 12, God said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God said to Abraham, I will make you of you, a great nation. This promise is a big deal because God's gonna make a nation out of one man. He picked somebody to do something. He was gonna take Abraham and make out of him a nation and it would be God's nation and its citizens would enjoy all of the benefits of following God, all of his blessings, He picked Abraham and Abraham's family to make a new nation and he kept that promise because from Abraham was born a son and that son had 12 sons and those sons had more sons and it went on and on and over the next couple, three, four hundred years, that one man grew into the nation of Israel and God made promises to those people. And those promises came with a sign, all right? When we started this, it said, you Gentiles, those who are called the uncircumcision by the circumcision, all right? I'm talking about circumcision from stage into this microphone, so get ready. We're gonna go there. A lot of people still make that happen today, right? I'm not gonna take a poll to see who's in and who's out based on circumcision right now. That would get awkward. But back in these times, that wouldn't have been out of the ordinary, That mark was a real deal. It made a distinction, a division between Jews and Gentiles. Every baby boy born to an Israelite family was circumcised when he was eight days old. It symbolized being cut off from sin and being joined into the family of God and his blessings. If you don't have the sign, you're not part of the promise. So there's a distinction now. There are Jews. They are citizens of the family nation of promise, of the nation of Israel. They are circumcised. They were picked. And then there's a separation, a division, a distinction. And on the other side, there are Gentiles. They are the people who are not part of the family nation of God. They're not part of Israel. Their citizenship is elsewhere. They're the uncircumcised. They're left out. They're not picked. People were separated and humanity was divided. And Paul commands us, you Gentiles, that's probably the vast majority of us here. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. Now, Paul is building up to something here. You remember, this isn't just an isolated text. It's written in a letter. So you would have read all this together with the first chapter and the first half of the second chapter. And so he's broadening his view. 
Um, last week, Doug said that uh, in Christ, the dead are made alive. This week, Paul is kind of zooming out the binoculars. So last week, we were zoomed in on the individual. And he says, remember, you were dead. It's almost an individual statement. You were dead, but now Christ has made us alive. In this scripture, Paul's wheeling that dial out, zooming out the binoculars, and he's saying, we as a people, not only were you dead, but we as a people were separated from Christ. This was our corporate identity. The Gentiles, that's most of us, we were separated out. At the very least, the Jews, they knew about God through his law and his prophets. They knew he was going to send a savior. But as Gentiles, we didn't have access to any of that knowledge. You didn't have the law, you didn't have the prophets, you didn't have promises. We got none of that. We were separated. You weren't part of the right family. You didn't have the right mark. You were on the outside looking in. But not only that, the Bible says we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We were foreigners outside God's land. We didn't have any rights to his provision or protection. There's no visa program, no passport stamp that can get you in. We, were part of, we weren't part of the right family, and we were outside, foreign aliens unable to enter the land. But maybe worst of all, we were strangers to his covenant promises. God made so many great promises to his people And those on the outside didn't have access to any of them. Let me walk you through just a few real quick. God told Noah, remember this story? God told Noah that he would never again destroy the world by water like he did with the great flood. God told Abraham, what we just read, that his family would establish the kingdom of God through which all nations would be blessed. One man into a nation. God told Moses, the man to whom he gave the law, that everyone who followed God's law would be blessed by it. God told Phineas, a priest, that he would always provide a priest among his people to mediate for their sin. God told David, the king, that one day David's son would also be God's son who would rule over his eternal kingdom forever. God told Jeremiah, the prophet, That one day, God's law wouldn't just be written on stone tablets or in books, but that he would write his law on our hearts. He would put it inside of us. And when that happened, those people would know God and he would forgive their sins. God is revealing this eternal purpose, this plan that he had to his people. But listen, If you weren't part of the chosen people, if you weren't picked, we were strangers to those promises. They weren't made to you. They weren't explained to you. They maybe weren't even intended for you when they were spoken. The result for us people left out. We were without hope and without God in the world. This is not a rosy thing to remember. Somebody else got called to come on down. Somebody else got to spin the wheel and take home the prizes. We were left on the outside looking in. Paul said, remember that at one time we were separated from Christ. 
bad throwback Thursday. But just like last week, the text doesn't end there. We're only in the first two verses, and Derek read a lot of verses, right? Last week, the text had a turning point, a pivot, and do you remember what it was? Two words. You were dead, but God. But God. Something changed when God entered into that equation. You were dead, but God. And the same thing happens today. Let's look back at the scripture. Um, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus. The same two words, expanded a little bit, but God, this time, but now in Christ Jesus. You who were once far off have been brought near. Something changed when Jesus came. Our past, what we were, is not our present. Our past, who we were, is not our future. We were separated from Christ, but now in Jesus, we who were far off have been brought near. That same death to life transformation that Doug talked about, that happens in the heart that turns to Jesus, that same transformation happens in the community that embraces him. Okay? Zoom out the binoculars. That's where we're going today. We were strangers, but now in Christ, we're made one. So the question is, what does it look like for our community, for those on the outside, to be made one in Jesus? I think it looks like going from being left out to being brought in. There aren't outsiders and insiders anymore. We're made one in Christ. We were separated but in Jesus we're made one. Let's look at the Bible. Um, I'm going to read four verses here, and three words are repeated over and over and over again, all right? These are the three words. One, peace, and hostility, okay? One, peace, and hostility. Common Bible study practice, if words are repeated, they're important. So as I read this text, watch for these three words and see how they interact with each other, all right? We're going to read Ephesians uh, 2, 14 through 18. Uh, it goes like this. Verse 14. For he himself is our peace. That's Jesus. It's not what we know about him. It's not what he can do for us. It's he himself. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one. And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So what happened? Jesus has made us one. He is our peace and there is no more hostility. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Jesus fulfilled the law so that he could forgive those who break it. Okay? That he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, that's the Jews. Same message to both people. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. There are not two ways to get to God. There are not two sets of people, one who have access and the other who don't. We all have access through him 
in one spirit to the Father. The theme Paul is getting at here is undeniable. Jesus is in the business of making all of us one in him. He's killing hostility and making peace. We were separated, but now we're one. All those separations are gone. Now, let me be honest with you. There's a lot of history here. This is a lot of internals of how Jewish uh, covenant promises worked. And you might be thinking, man, it seems like this text was probably a lot more pertinent to the Ephesians, to whom this letter was written in their day, than it is to us now, right? Like in those days, uh, everybody knew that the Jews claimed a, a monopoly on relationship with their God. And nobody knew that better than Paul, because Paul actually killed whoever disagreed. Before he became a Christian, he persecuted the church. And if you disagreed with the Old Testament text, as the Jews understood it, he would actually have you killed. And he was ruthless and adamant to make that happen. And so if you're living in that time, but now that persecutor and that killer is saying, hey, no, our God is now for everyone. We all have access in one spirit. You probably need some explanation. Right? So I get why this text would be in this letter to them then, but what does it mean for us now? That was my question, honestly, as I'm reading through this. What does it mean for us today? Um, let me offer a couple thoughts, okay? First, I think we can know that everyone can be made one in Jesus, all right? Everyone can be made one in Jesus. Paul is going to great lengths to convince this young church that they can be and really are one in Christ. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you are one in Christ. There's no other litmus test. There's no blood test. There's no urine test, right? There's nothing else that gets you there or keeps you out. The divisions have been taken down. I want to walk carefully here, but I want to walk boldly. The church should be a radically open and inviting place because we have a radically open and inviting Savior, okay? Um, The Bible says that when Jesus came, he preached peace to those who were far off, and he preached peace to those who were near. Notice, he didn't say, I preach condemnation to those who are far off and praise to those who are near. He didn't say, I preach uh, judgment to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. No, no, it was peace to both I preach peace to those who are far off and peace to those who are near. Jesus' message to everyone was peace. And so I'd ask you this morning, is there anyone to whom you do not want to preach peace? Is there anyone toward whom your heart is hostile? Be honest. Your neighbor... What's his dog poop in your yard? That happens, does it stir up love and peace or hostility? Your boss makes work way harder than it ought to be. Does that stir up peace or hostility? Your spouse frustrates you. How do you respond? I don't feel like preaching peace right now. 
I'm not in the mood for that right now. I'm feeling a little hossy, right? A little hostile. You watch the news, this stir up in you love for everyone in the world, this stir up hostility. Be honest. Is there anyone toward whom you do not want to preach peace? Is there anyone toward whom you are hostile? See, I want to tell you today, Jesus died to make people one in him. He preached peace to those who were far, and he preached peace to those who were near. Where do people find peace? What was that message that he preached when he preached peace? It wasn't education or ignorance. It wasn't tolerance or prejudice, wealth or poverty, government or anarchy, urban or rural, structured or organic life. How did Jesus preach peace? He told people the only place that they can find it. It's in him alone. Paul said he himself is our peace. The church cannot and will not be a place of peace without Jesus Christ, all right? Peace is found when Jesus' blood makes people one with God because then we become one with each other in him. So let me give you a couple examples. What makes peace in a hostile marriage? Not more secrets or selfishness or revenge. It's Jesus. He makes us one as we learn to confess how we've hurt each other, repent and ask for forgiveness. Oneness in marriage comes when we become one with the one who first modeled selfless love for us, all right? What makes peace in a hostile family? It's not more yelling at the kids or forcing them to obey, no more tiptoeing around each other. It's Jesus. He makes us one as we become one with the good father who is slow to anger, always disciplining his children out of a desire for their good, not out of his own anger, always speaking the truth in love. We have oneness in families when we become one with the good father. What makes peace in a hostile world? It's not more legislation or litigation or Facebook posts, okay? It's Jesus. He's broken down the walls of hostility and invited men and women of every nation, tribe, language, and tongue to become one in him. If God has made Jews and Gentiles one, if he could break down that barrier, he will break down all other barriers. Everyone can be made one in Jesus. So what does that mean for us? City Light, I think it means we need to be a church that preaches peace to all people in Jesus, all people near and far. Can we be that kind of a people? One more thought. What is this? We were separated, but in Jesus, we're made one. What does this mean for us today? One more thought. Becoming one in Jesus gives us a new foundation. Okay, it changes the place where we stand. Let's go back to his word. Verse 19. Um, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Our identity changes. We're not strangers anymore, far off, left out, unpicked, foreigners. We are now citizens and members of his household. Our relationship to God has changed. We're inside now when we're in Jesus. 
Paul goes on to tell us a couple things about God's house, okay, in the verse that immediately follows. Uh, You're no longer strangers and aliens. You're fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The foundation of God's house is the gospel, and its cornerstone is Jesus. All right, now I want to tell you, I sing songs to my kids before bed. You'll never hear me sing into a microphone, but I do sing to my kids. They get to hear it every night. One of the songs that they love to sing or used to, we call the wise man. Okay, you might remember this little kid's song. Um, The wise man built his house upon the rock and the rains came tumbling down. The rains came down and the floods came up, but the house on the rock, you guys know it, stood firm. And every time we'd sing that song, at the end, my son Jonah, he would always ask, Daddy, is our house built on a rock? Yeah, buddy, it's built on a rock. It's a solid foundation. And then he'd ask me all these questions. Daddy, will our house stand firm if it's too sunny outside? Yeah, buddy, sun's not going to shake it. It's going to stand firm. Daddy, will our house stand firm if it rains too hard and the floods come? Yep, buddy, we got a house on a rock. It's going to stand firm. Daddy, will our house stand firm if a car hits it? (laughs) Buddy, I don't know. I'm going to try to keep cars from hitting our house, okay? But it's a firm foundation. Our house is built on a rock. Something in his little mind really wanted to know, are we on a sure foundation? What is our house built on? Is it going to last? City Light, I'm here to tell you, you may be asking the same thing about your own life. There may be something in you that says, I just don't know if where I'm standing is sure. If I have a firm foundation, will the things that I'm trusting in fail me one day? Will my savings account get depleted? Will my house get foreclosed? Will I lose my job? Will my spouse leave me? Will my kids grow up and move away and forget about me? Will my Facebook posts not get likes anymore, right? Whatever you're building your foundation on, you may be asking, is it sure? Today, Paul is telling us there is no more sure foundation than the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophets looked forward to it. The apostles witnessed it and Jesus accomplished it. We talk about the gospel here like this. We would summarize it this way. The gospel is the good news that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the story that's been told from the beginning of time. It will continue to be told until the end of time. There is no more sure foundation. So let me assure you, as a pastor of City Light Church, we will not chart new waters on this. We will not explore new lands. We will not build any new foundation. We will only stand on the foundation that's already been built. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he himself is the cornerstone. We're not going anywhere from that. See, like, I have good news for you this morning. We were a people separated from Jesus, but now in Jesus, we've been made one with him and with each other. 
That should make us a people who are willing and bold and courageous to go preach peace to those who are far and those who are near. And it should make us a people who are certain that we are standing on the only firm foundation that we will ever find. Okay? That is good news for people in Ephesus 2,000 years ago, and it's good news for us today.